The sermon text is the first lesson from Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 to 10. The Lord came down in the cloud. He took his stand there with Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and overflowing with mercy and truth, maintaining mercy for thousands, forgiving guilt and rebellion and sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. He calls their children and their children's children to account for the guilt of the fathers, even to the third and the fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed to the ground and worshiped. He said, if I have now found favor in your sight, Lord, please let the Lord go along with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our guilt and our sin and accept us as your possession. The Lord said, see, I am making a covenant. In the presence of all your people, I will do marvelous things, such as have never been created anywhere on earth or in any nation. So all the people who are around you will see the work of the Lord, for it is an awe-inspiring thing that I will do for you. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. As labor markets began to tighten and workers realized how high the demand was for them, a phenomenon took hold called quiet quitting. The name is a little misleading because if you're a quiet quitter, you don't quit your job altogether. You just quit doing any more than the bare minimum of your job requirement. So you leave your heart at home, and you leave the office every afternoon at 5 p.m. sharp, and you accept no task that asks you to go above and beyond your basic job description. Because, hey, if nobody's going to get fired for not working late or not working hard, then why do it, right? At the same time that quiet quitting was taking off, uh, another practice was gaining momentum called extreme super saving. Extreme super savers spend not one more penny than they, than they absolutely have to on anything. They pay the bare minimum for rent, food, they never eat out, they bike or walk to work and their vacation time, they do not travel anywhere. And the whole goal is to sacrifice all of those things that make life nice for 15 or 20 years so that you can retire as soon as possible. So you scrimp and you sacrifice to the extreme so you can get away from work forever. Meanwhile, across the Pacific Ocean, in nations that once revered hard work and long hours above all else, young workers were taking to another practice. It's, it's hard to translate from Mandarin where it started, but it roughly means lying flat. And people who lie flat go get a job, and they work it just for a little while until they save up just a little bit of money, and then they quit and they go lie flat on the couch until they've used up the money they saved, and then they go back and get another job and save up a little more, then they go back to the sofa and repeat and repeat and repeat. Now what do all of these new ideas and practices, which some would argue are actually old ideas and practices just with new names attached to them, but what do they all have in common? The goal of all of them is to work 
as little and as lightly as possible and to get away from work altogether as quickly as possible. Moses climbed a mountain called Sinai where the Lord spoke to him for 40 days and 40 nights and most of what the Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai could be summarized like this. Here you go, Moses. Here is how I want you and the rest of the Israelites to work for me. This is my law, my commandments, how you will work for me. I brought you out of the misery of slavery in Egypt. I have brought you safely all the way to this holy mountain. And I am going to take you all the way to the beautiful land of Canaan and make it your own. Now here is how you will work for me. And it is worth noting that these Israelites, to whom the Lord was giving his rules for how to work, did not exactly have a strong work history for the Lord. The Israelites were much better at quiet quitting, and in some cases loud, obnoxious quitting in their work for the Lord. And they were much better at lying flat, and sometimes standing up and screaming and kicking in rebellion against the Lord, than they were at working for him faithfully. For example, this is actually the second time that the Lord is giving his law to Moses carved on stone tablets because Moses smashed the first copy in anger. The first time the Lord gave his law to Moses on Mount Sinai, Moses climbed down and he found the Israelites worshiping a giant golden calf, an idol. Now imagine this, if you're Moses, you are bringing down to the Israelites the rules of how to work for the Lord And before you can even read it to them, they have already quit. So Moses smashed those tablets in frustration. And the Israelites, they paid a steep price for that rebellion against the Lord. He disciplined them severely. But then he also forgave them and called them back as his people to work for him again. Moses climbed back up that mountain and the Lord gave him a second copy of his law his rules for work. But this time, before Moses climbs back down that mountain, the Lord preaches a sermon to Moses, a sermon about himself, a sermon about his own name. Now, if you go strictly by word count, this is probably the shortest sermon you are ever going to hear in your life. But the meaning of this sermon is so profound that it is rightly called the Sermon on the Name of the Lord. And the Lord starts this sermon about himself, about his own name, by speaking his name twice. The Lord, the Lord. That name, Lord, is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And it is the name that God uses to connect himself to his grace and his faithfulness. And it totally makes sense that the Lord starts this sermon on his own name by saying his name twice. Because this sermon is all about the grace and the faithfulness in the heart of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and overflowing with mercy and truth, maintaining mercy for thousands, forgiving guilt and rebellion and sin. The Lord is compassionate, which means He knows when people are in pain, and he cares about it. For example, way back 
at the burning bush when the Lord called Moses to be the leader who would bring the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, one of the first things the Lord said in that conversation with Moses was, I know. I am aware of how much my people are suffering. And I feel it. When their Egyptian taskmasters abuse them, I feel it in my own heart. What an amazing quality this is for the Lord to have, to feel it and to care when people are in pain. Because honestly, how many people genuinely care when you are hurting? Out of the 8 billion or, pe or so people in the world, 5, maybe 10 if you are an extremely blessed person, but the Lord who created us all, he knows and he cares when any one of us is suffering. The Lord also says he is gracious, which means he gives people good things that they do not deserve. And that includes everything that we need. Every breath, every beat of the heart, every forkful of food, every warm rush of air out of the vents in our apartments and our homes is because God gives it to us graciously. And that's not even to mention all of the amazing things that God gives us above and beyond what we need to enjoy just because he is so thoroughly gracious. None of it is deserved. No human being has a receipt in his hand for money or services rendered to God that the Lord owes them these things. Not even life itself. It is all God's grace. His undeserved goodness. Then the Lord says he is slow to anger. Nowhere in his word does God ever claim that his patience is infinite. It does eventually run out, but his patience is deep. He waits, and he waits, and he waits for people to come around and turn to him and look to him in faith. All you have to do is look at the way he is treating these Israelite people. They had turned away from him and worshipped an Egyptian-style idol. That golden calf was the kind of idol they worshipped back in Egypt, where the Israelites were slaves. What a slap in the face that was to the Lord. And the Lord did discipline them for that, but he forgave them. And he took them back because he is patient. He is slow to anger. The Lord is overflowing with mercy and truth. So while grace gives you good things that you don't deserve... Mercy holds back bad stuff that you do deserve. And the Lord says that his heart is overflowing with that quality. Now usually when things are overflowing, it is not good news. Bathtubs, hot beverage containers, gas cans. Overflow is generally a pain in the neck at best and maybe worse. But picture the heart of the Lord overflowing with mercy. What would the result of that be? Everyone down here on earth who needs relief from the punishment they deserve, mercy is overflowing from the heart of God above and covering everyone in this world who needs it. The Lord also says that his heart overflows with truth. Right here, at this very moment, as he preaches this sermon, the truth is overflowing from the heart of the Lord into Moses' ears and onto the pages of Scripture for us. And when the truth overflows from God's heart to ours, it fills us with joy because it is the truth of his compassion and his grace and his patience. And the Lord does not waffle. And he does not fade away 
in his forgiveness. He is maintaining mercy for thousands, forgiving guilt and rebellion and sin. So God is not one of these people who rolls out of bed one morning looking at you and the world one day, and then he rolls out of bed the next morning and sees things a completely different way. He sticks to his mercy and his forgiveness when he promises it. He says that he forgives guilt and rebellion and sin. Now, those three words do have a slightly different shade of meaning, but they're pretty close. And they all come out in the same place, which is deserving punishment, deserving condemnation. But God's forgiveness is not only constant, it is also thorough. He forgives all rebellion, all wickedness, all sin. Now the Lord closes his sermon by making it clear that not everybody stands under his compassion and his mercy and his grace. He will by no means clear the guilty. He calls their children and their children's children to account for the guilt of their fathers, even to the third and fourth generation. So, people who turn away from the Lord in unbelief, they remain guilty, and they remain under God's condemnation. And once faith is gone from a family, it is usually gone for good. And in that way, the guilt spreads down through the generations. Now, should we see this closing line of the Lord's sermon as kind of a downer, kind of a low note for him to end his sermon on? Well, not really. If you are a believer, it just makes you all the more appreciative of God's work, reaching out to your heart and turning you to faith in him so that you are saved from being called to account for guilt. And when the Lord has finished his sermon on his own name, Moses immediately bows all the way down to the earth in worship. Now, the Lord goes even farther. Before he sends Moses back down that mountain with the second copy of his rules for how to work for the Lord, the Lord, who has just preached a sermon on his own name to Moses, he now says, I am going to prove it. All of those amazing adjectives that I just used to describe myself, I am going to prove that they are true by what I will do for you and for all the people of Israel. The Lord said, see, I am making a covenant. In the presence of all your people, I will do marvelous things, such as have never been created anywhere on earth or in any nation. So all the people who are around you will see the work of the Lord, for it is an awe-inspiring thing that I will do for you. So the Lord is showing Moses and the Israelites for the second time how they should work for him. But before he sends Moses down with that law, with those rules, the Lord says, I am going to work for you. I am going to show you just how true it is, everything that I have said about myself. And that's what the Lord did. For the next millennium and a half, he proved all of those qualities to Israel by remaining compassionate, gracious, merciful, and patient to them. So the Lord tells Moses on the mountain, this is who I am. And I'm going to prove it by what I do for you. Now, take down to the Israelites how to work for me. So, how do you and I work 
for the Lord. He tells us how to work for him, just as he told Moses and the Israelites how to work for him. There is no reason for any child of God to have to wonder, what should I do in the Lord's service? He tells us all we have to do is listen and listen carefully. The Lord does not expect us to keep the civil, governmental laws that he gave to Moses and the Israelites. He also does not expect us to keep the worship laws for the temple that he gave to the Israelites. But the Lord does expect all of his people of all time to keep his moral code, which he sums up for us very neatly like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So in its simplest summary, we work for the Lord by loving him with everything we've got, our entire existence, and also loving our neighbor, the person that God puts next to us in this world. Now if you want more detail on that, the Word of God definitely does go into more detail and more analysis on how to show love for the Lord and how to show love for the people around you in this world, for your neighbor. But the purpose of the rest of this message is not so much to address the how to work for the Lord, what to do in his service. Because I honestly wonder how many times every day a Christian comes up to a situation where they are genuinely confused, where they really don't know what to do in that situation to show love for the Lord or to show love for their neighbor, right? We know how to show love for the Lord. You thank him, you praise him, you worship him. We know how to show love for each other and for other people in this world. You help them maintain their stuff instead of swiping it. You build up their reputation instead of gossiping about them. You encourage them instead of insulting them. You show them humility instead of hubris. We know this. We know how to show love for God and for our neighbor. Now, if you ever do come up to a situation in your life where you genuinely don't know what you should do in that situation to show love for your Lord and love for your neighbor, give me a call. It's part of my job. We'll go through it together. We'll look up some Bible passages and help you figure it out. And you know what? The right answer might be that there is no right answer because there are many areas where God leaves us free to follow our conscience and how we will show love for him and show love for our neighbor. Now, it is true that as our culture becomes more and more godless, Christians are getting more confused about the how, what to do to show love for God and for their neighbor, especially, I think, in areas of the Sixth Commandment and the Seventh Commandment, finances and handling money. But for the most part, our struggle is not with how. It's why we work for the Lord. Why shouldn't I just quietly quit on the Lord and do the bare minimum? Why should I not go into early retirement and say, Lord, the rest of my life is for me. I'm just going to live now for my own happiness or my own pleasure. Why shouldn't I just lie flat and walk away from working for the Lord? When the Lord preaches this sermon on his name to Moses, he tells us a lot about himself. But it's not everything. There is even more to know about the Lord, who he is. For example, way back at the burning bush, Moses asked the Lord a very good question. He said, when I go to the Israelites and tell them, 
I'm in charge now. I'm going to lead you out of slavery. And they say, who do you think you are? Who sent you? What should I say? Which was a good question, right? And this was the answer the Lord gave. Tell them, I am has sent you. The Lord's name is also I am, which tells us that he is constant. He never changes. It's not I was, and it's not I will be. He is constant. That means everything that he said about himself to Moses on Mount Sinai 3,500 years ago is still true today. There is a, a misconception that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different somehow. Like somehow in the 400 years between the Testaments, God underwent some kind of personality change. That idea is wrong. He is I am. He is constant. So everything he said to Moses remains the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and overflowing with mercy and truth, maintaining mercy for thousands, and he is still the Lord who by no means clears the guilty. And he is still the God who backs up everything that he says about himself with what he does, just as he proved the truth of all those adjectives to Moses and the Israelites by what he did for them. He's proven it to us by what he's done for us. Now the Lord told Moses, all the people who are around you will see the work of the Lord, for it is an awe-inspiring thing that I will do for you. We have seen the work of the Lord for us, and it is an awe-inspiring thing that the Lord has done for us. The still and always compassionate Lord saw us in the misery of our sin and condemnation, and he felt it. He cared. The still and always gracious Lord sent us the gift of his Son. It is grace in the purest sense of the word, totally undeserved in any way, and God sent us the gift of himself, his own Son, to be perfect on the in our place and to die on the cross to take away all of our sins. The still and always forgiving Lord forgives our rebellion and our wickedness and our sin. And he is the Lord who still maintains his mercy. So when you leave this world and meet the Lord face to face, he will maintain his mercy to you. You will see none of the punishment that you deserve, only the glory that Jesus has won for you. It is an awe-inspiring thing that the Lord has done for us, saving us in his Son, Jesus Christ. And it proves the truth to us of everything that the Lord says about himself. And the Lord's heart is still and always overflowing with truth. We know these things are true because God has sent us his son, Jesus Christ. He is the word, the truth of God in the flesh. And God hands us his truth on the pages of the Holy Spirit's own book. The truth from God's heart convinces us of everything he tells us he has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And because God is, I am, because he is constant and unchanging, 
It doesn't matter how many years have passed since Jesus Christ walked in this world and lived that perfect life and died for sins on the cross. It still stands for you. That forgiveness is still yours through faith in God's Son. And it doesn't matter how many more years it will be before you leave this world and meet the Lord. You will meet him clothed in Christ's righteousness. And one day you will enter God's kingdom in the flesh by the power of Christ's resurrection. When the Lord preached the sermon on his own name to Moses, he was giving Moses very good reason for the Israelites to work for him. And it is a very good reason for us too. The Lord is so good. He is so eternally good. And he has proved it by what he has done for us. That is our reason. The only reason we need to work for him. Amen.